Hello, I'm Joey Barton and welcome to The Edge, my brand new podcast series for Deezer Originals. Now most of you will know me from the football pitch and maybe occasionally from the headlines too, but I also consider myself many things, a pundit, a father, a bit of a thinker. Over the past few months I've found myself away from sport, banned from the game of love, and I've been using my time to explore something I've always been interested in, the mindset and the psychology of the game. To have the edge, as I would call it. Now to me, the idea of the edge can mean a lot of things. Being on the edge of success, the edge of failure, the edge of change. But on the edge, I feel that's where you truly find out about yourself. It's where you truly grow and prosper as an individual. And on this show, I want to explore that. To speak with the people I look up to in the worlds of performance, sport, music, politics and beyond. And to find out what living on the edge really means to them. Well, in last week's episode, we spoke to Sean Dyche, my old boss and Burnley FC manager. It was a great chat, and if you haven't heard it already, you should go back and start this podcast from the beginning. But in episode two today, I wanted to get away from my usual realm to interview somebody from a completely different field, although no less competitive. Our guest this week is a proven winner who has quite literally written a book on success. A journalist, an author, and a spin doctor. He was Tony Blair's spokesperson and strategist during Labour's 1997 run to victory. I am, of course, talking about the one and only Alistair Campbell. Now, Alistair and I met a long time ago when I was playing out in France at Marseille. He had a house on the south coast of France and used to take up the Marseille games as part of his weekends or weeks spent over there. I knew he was a Burnley fan, I knew he was a Mad Keen football fan, so we would discuss my admiration for, for Sean Dyche and obviously his, as a Burnley fan's, devotion to Sean Dyche and, and the surge that they were on in terms of getting promotion from the Championship to the Premier League the first time round. I've always been fascinated by Alistair's story, the ups and the downs, and wondered what it must have been like to have lived through all that. And whether you agree with his politics or not, this podcast is a really fascinating one. In our discussion, we talked about everything, from Brexit to football, from chaos to depression... But we began our conversation back in the Britpop era, the mid-90s, to talk about the campaign that led to his fame. Right, Al, we'll get into it. That was was a nice intro for you there. I was blowing loads of smoke up your backside there, mate. Yeah, so that looked good. So the first topic for me would be the winning of the general election in May 1997. You know, let me take you back to that period when you teamed up with Tony Blair. Was winning the... 97 general election, the be-all and end-all of everything you did from 94 to 97? Yeah, totally. Uh, it didn't mean that you didn't believe what you were doing. It didn't mean you didn't believe in the policies that you were taking forward. But if you didn't get into power, there was absolutely nothing you could do. So we had an absolute obsessive focus on winning. Was that the greatest win of your career so far? Um yeah, I think Labour winning a landslide in '97. Funny if the second win was pretty impressive, because you know not many, not many governments win with the the same majority second time around. But yeah, that was what it felt that campaign. It felt like everything that we planned over those few years, it sort of all came together at the right time. And there was... I, I remember the change. All that. That's what struck me. I remember kind of John Major and obviously being from the north of England, the anti-Thatcher kind of feel, anti-Tory party feel. And I'm from Knowsley, which is a very, very strong Labour seat. And I just remember politics became music, it became football. You mm. know, It was the first time for me, and I was 15, 16 at the time, not able to vote, but I remember it really fascinated me and gave me a, an insight or a, an excitement about yeah. politics. So... I think it was. I mean, it was a very exciting time. And in fact, fair enough, we're not far here from Gower Street. I can remember on the morning when Tony went to see the Queen and we went up to meet him at his house. We'd only had a couple of hours sleep. And then I was in two cars behind. They had him in the front with Cherie, police in the second car, and Jonathan Powell and I were in the third car. And I can remember going down, we were driving down Gower Street and it was weird. There were people who were following it live on telly who were running out of the houses. And I could see this cascade of people coming out. And I also remember Tony that day saying, this is really, really a bit worrying because you cannot govern on euphoria. And it's true, you can't, you know, so it was incredibly exciting. And you're right, I think, the cultural resonances are really powerful. 
that, I mean, people think it was us that talked about Cool Britannia. It wasn't. It was a magazine headline that kind of just took hold. It was an American magazine that talked about Cool Britannia. But that whole thing about, you know, whether it was Oasis and yeah. Blur yeah, and the Britpop you know, the Premier you know, League becoming kind of so dominant and that sense of sort of a culture on the move. And you look at where we are now. Yeah. With I mean, does anybody around the world kind of go, oh, wow, Theresa May? <laughs> I don't think so. No, I know. There was a lot Premier of that League was, what, 92? When the Premier yeah. League's formed, so you've got Premier League, you've got Oasis and Blair, that big battle. As you say, Cool Britannia, you'd had, like, Kate Moss, you had all these fashion, you know, whether it was, like, Alistair, what's his name? Campbell. Alexander McQueen. <laughs> no, he's not quite that fashionable. Uh, Alexander McQueen, all yeah. these. There was just that real positive vibe yeah. around the country. And I think, certainly for me, when you think back, I mean, when did you ever see? You would never have seen John Major with, or, or even... You know, anybody for, uh, who was a Tory candidate with pop stars, no. with, with rock stars, you know, which... Well, yeah, they're funny enough, the whole celeb thing. I'm not sure about the whole celeb thing in politics, but I don't know if you remember, there was a big party at number 10 and Noel Gallagher was there. And, and it became, in a way, too prominent. And people thought, oh, that's what they're about. When we weren't about that, but what I think we were trying to do was to capture something of that mood and turn it into something positive. Because yeah. mood is really important. Morale is really important in any organisation. So if you're trying to lead a country, as Tony was, through real change, getting that sense of the rest of the world looking in and going, oh, wow, you know, Britain is a place on the move. It's a, it's a country that's going places. That's a really powerful political dynamic. Yeah, but on the flip side of that, you know, he wasn't exactly following, say, a Sir Alex Ferguson at Man United, you know, John Major. I don't think he really galvanised the populace. You know, was it, no. was it easy to, to follow that? Well, he'd followed Thatcher. I, I think, in a way, what we were following was a very long period of Conservative government. Now, that gave us challenges, but it, it also, you're right, it was like people felt, oh, thank God they've gone. And that was, again, a useful political dynamic that Tony rode very, very well. And what, I think one of the benefits of me having kept a diary the whole time is you do see that whatever is happening, it is always really, really difficult. Yeah. So you might think, you know, 97, May the 2nd, OK, you've got a few hours where it kind of felt pretty good. But very quickly, you've got really big stuff coming down the track all the time. And it's relentless. And so the other thing that's really interesting about our system, like you mentioned John Major there, so one day he's the Prime Minister, and then he's gone. It's not like mm. America where you have the election, and you have this transition period, and everybody gets used to it. Yeah, we've seen that with Trump, then we can't yeah, talk it just goes on for, it goes on, seems to go on for ages, whereas in our system, you go around the country for a few weeks, you're completely exhausted, you stay up all night watching the results, and if there's a change of government, and the new Prime Minister goes off to get appointed by the Queen, then he's straight into the job. Okay, we so it's like being a football manager? It is a bit like that. Like, around the country straight, trying to get results, and then straight, if you don't get the right you're out. you're gone. Yeah, then you're done. out. So, and so John Major literally, and I don't know if you remember, but he, he left Downing Street and he went straight to the Oval to watch the cricket. The, the other thing that's interesting about modern politics is these guys are going to these jobs younger and younger. So you look at Cameron and Obama, both left office recently, mm. I don't, you know, the young men, relatively. Yeah. Rest of the life in front of them. You've got decades. Well, what do you do after you've been president or prime minister? What's, what's the next step? It's difficult. It's difficult. I think you, they all have to work it out in their own way. I mean, I think, you know, Tony's, he gets a lot of grief for all, you know, making too much money, all that stuff. But actually what he's doing is using that to build a kind of what I call post-power politics. He's still in public life. He's still doing policy development. He's still focusing on big projects in Africa and around the world. And so he's doing he's doing all th this in a, in a very different way. Clinton as well. So look, you see these guys. I saw Hollande recently in, in Paris, and he was like, you know, setting up a foundation, doing different things. But it's not the same. It's never, ever going to be the same. And I mean, I find one of the things that I've... I don't even know if I've learned it but I, I sort of feel a bit more comfortable. But it's, I mean, I left Downing Street in 2003. It's 14 years since I left. And I'd say during that whole period, I've really struggled with coming to terms with it. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not doing lots of different things and I don't have a good life. I do. Yeah. But it's been a struggle. I'm in the midst of not yeah. playing football, so I'm still in the embryonic stages yeah. pretty much and I know how difficult I've found the adjustment so obviously for you to leave what is the centre of power in, in this country it must have been difficult to leave centre stage it, well it was difficult and also it was very very difficult circumstances I mean yours are difficult circumstances leaving football <laughs> but my, self-inflicted yeah but mine were 
you know, it was it was right at the height of the controversy over my role in the Iraq War. It was very difficult at home. In fact, the latest volume of diaries it's out now was 2005 to 2007, and it's probably got the worst single episode of where I felt myself mentally completely losing control. Um, Which was? Well, I ended up walking with Fiona out on the heath. I was, I was just, I don't know, I was sort of very down, bit suicidal, and I ended up, I started beating myself up that, on the that, heath. Well, that... That dark, it got that dark for you. Yeah, yeah. I was beat. I was. I was literally. I, you know, I had a swollen. I, I was punching myself in the face like I was really trying to knock myself out. I remember looking at Fiona. She was petrified, and that was actually when I started to get help. And I okay. went and saw a proper psychiatrist, and and I still see him. And I kind of, but I'm still. I saw you know you one of one of the things you said when we talked about doing this. One of the things you wanted to talk about was whether you focus more on your past, the present, or the future, I'd say I'm focused on all three all the time in permanent conflict, never quite <laughs> getting the balance right. Yeah. But it's interesting, you know, I'm, as you know from talking together when you were at Marseille and also at Burnley, I'm, I'm obsessed with sport. And one of the reasons, and I'll tell you, when I went on the Lions tour, it's really interesting how many people I met, all those pundits who were there and what have you, former players, and how many sports people I interviewed for the winner's book that you mentioned in the intro, how many of them talked about the hardest part of their life was when they gave up what they were good at and then thought... Now, me, I was in my 40s. I'm now 60. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but for you... But for you... I thought you looked well younger, mate. I do. I'm saying <laughs> I can still play. I could still do that holding midfield role as well as you do, I'm telling you. So, but the... The number of sports people I've met who said that has been the worst period in their life when they stop and it all goes. Mm. And, I, you know, when I've played in charity matches and stuff like that, and I did the first soccer aid with Maradona and Gaza and all these amazing footballers, and it was even somebody like Maradona, I could see how much he was loving just being back mm. for one day, getting something back that he used to get. And all of those players, they were loving it. And... I think, but that, if, you, if you think about it from their perspective, so you've got Maradona; he's getting the chance to be back centre stage. Yeah, it's very rare if you're in politics that once the stage is taken away, that you actually go back to it. You know, well, yes and no. I think you see, funny enough, a lot of the there are people, maybe not the people who get to the very, very top, but there are certainly people who say being ministers yeah. who get more seem to get more clout when they're outside because the media love having them on to slag off the people who are there now. So, and I think there's a bit of that in your game as well. I think that a lot of the players who become pundits, a lot of them just love the fact that they're saying they're not as good as I was. They don't say that, but a lot of the the, the subtext is that. And I can remember on the, again on the Lions tour, and every time I see Matt Dawson, I can remember Matt Dawson saying to me, "Oh, I'm never going to do that pundit stuff where you slag off the guys and say it wouldn't happen in my day." But you know, it's a very tempting thing to do because yeah. it keeps you connected. To a world that you don't want to lose, and it and it's, you know, I'm delving into that yeah. part of the the industry myself now, and I think it's, I just find it a little bit, a little bit easy. It's, you Do know, you find it's it second not, best though to football. Of, of course, yeah. of course. There's not, I, I you know, so for some people, I, I understand it's it's less pressurised. You kind of move at your own pace if you want to. Whereas yeah. when you're in the industry, you go with yeah. the speed of you know the tide wherever the tide's going that's where you're going but I think these guys the who become really really good at it like you know you'd have to say Gary Lineker's been an amazing success as a broadcaster Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher that people look at and think these guys are really really good at what they do and I think relatively from, yeah to, to what's gone before I, I do think Who's your best then? Who's your favourite? I, I still don't think anybody's beat Andy Gray. I think Andy Gray. Yeah. I think Andy Gray has never been better. So if we're looking at it in terms of have right, we evolved? Okay. But my point is, those guys are doing that, and they're taking it seriously, like they took the football seriously. Whereas a lot of them, I think, actually, they know deep down it's second best, and so they they kind of do it a bit yeah. second best. But it never used to be. If you think about it, it never used to be a viable option. So when you finish playing. Mm. You had to get a coaching job or on someone's coaching staff because there wasn't, you know, if you didn't get the match of the day slot with Des Lynham, mm. there wasn't that much football on TV. Yeah, but no. So now it's, I mean, you can, you don't even need the channel anymore. You can start your own YouTube channel. Yeah. You can start on yeah. social media. So the opportunities now, and I suppose, is that the same in, in the political landscape? No, 
I it's think, always I, th- I think you've got to be I think you I think you've got to work to be funny enough I did an interview with Fiona we did an interview together recently and, and Fiona she, is your, my partner yeah, yeah we, okay we, and we've been together 38 years but she said in this interview that she thought I had a bit of a relevance issue and there's something in that I think now I don't when I'm struggling as I say I do with past present future there's lots of things that I know I could do that I know I don't want to do. Yeah. Like, for example, I don't want to lose my freedom. If you've got freedom like I've got, that means you'd, I'm not going to commit to a full-time job somewhere. I don't want it. Yeah, but what I you? do want is to work out where I want to be active and relevant and try and make change and then go for it. So whether that's trying to stop Brexit or whether it's trying to campaign on mental health and mental illness or it's you know trying to make sure that I'm, I'm not bored... Because that's a big thing for me. I've Future. got to avoid being bored. The devil will make work the for demon, idle hands. My, de- my psychiatrist talks a lot about my demon, and it, and it gets active when I'm when I'm when I'm bored. But it's the same thing that when it's channeled with me, I find that if I'm idle, that's when the chaos can yeah. come into my life. But I find if I'm active, so what I've done in the interim after football is be really active, the mm. likes of this podcast, amongst other things, mm. and that has. Is it, displacement, is it displacement therapy? I, I, would, I, I wouldn't say so. I haven't missed football as much as I thought. I always work on worst-case scenario, especially when it comes to my emotions. I always think, what's the worst that can happen? So I'd set myself up for, like, Armageddon. Right. And it actually was never going to be that bad. Yet there's been difficult days. There's been times when I'm like, I really miss this. And obviously going to Anfield and seeing yeah. the lads do yeah. what they did and the fans. And I know you were there as part of the Burnley Ultras. As you, as you know, as you usually are. So yeah, obviously seeing that, you're like, okay, I, I, I'd love to be back in a part of that. So that, that, you know, and I'm fortunate in terms of, I'm one of the few, you know, I've got a band, but it's not a career-ending injury. It's something that I can negate yeah. with a lot of hard work and, yeah. and hopefully if I get an opportunity. So I've still got... You didn't see, maybe it, as an, you didn't see it as an opportunity to say, right, that's it. I've, had my, I've now got a cut-off point. I can go and do other things. Well, I thought about it. And I also thought if I want to be an elite-level coach and an elite-level manager at some point, then... You've got to get on the pathway to doing that and, right. and, and tearing the proverbial arse out of your football career and maybe playing a squad role and coming on off the bench. I'm like, is that fitting where I want to go? So I've had m- many nights when I've contemplated what I want to do. And, and, and I agree with you. You know, Is it a bit of kind of displacement therapy? I don't mm. know. But it, it certainly seems to be working. Yeah. You know, I'm not thinking... And it gives me the opportunity to just get out and, you know, meet other people and yeah. obviously yourself and it, you always think what I've found Alice and I'm obviously a lot less experienced than you but I always think that whenever there's bad things happening to you you think it, this is only happening to me I'm the only person in the world that this is happening to and actually once you start communicating about oh, it yeah. you find out how common those thoughts absolutely. feelings insecurities are absolutely no that I mean I, since I've you know I started campaigning on the mental health stuff a few years ago and since then happened today just walking down here from home Every single day, I'm meeting people who come up and talk to me about them having, or a mem- family member or a friend, having a mental health problem. And is that, I surmise, that's quite therapeutic? Yeah. Well, I, I, people always say, I'm, you know, it's, I really like the fact you talk about it, but I actually, selfishly, it helps me. Yeah. I feel a lot better being so open about, you know, I've actually just come through quite a bad period of depression. And... Um, I, I feel better for talking about it. So do you, do you suffer, f- or like I've heard Winston Churchill talk about this dark, the see I don't, ha- I don't have that, yeah I've heard Churchill's been quoted yeah. as talking about it, and I'm f- fortunate really because I know people who have You've never had that. depression? I don't have it in terms of that, I've been, I felt down at times, right. but I'm genuinely an, an optimistic person, Okay. I always try and see, especially... Well I'm quite optimistic, but I get depression. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't think I, I have that. Right. So obviously, there's times when you're down and things yeah, yeah. aren't going good in life. But I'm, kind, I've always been quite, yeah. For whatever my constitution is, I'm quite stoic. I'm like, okay, yeah. kind of f, f yeah. that. I'm gonna do this. Yeah. You know, I've obviously been in jail, so there's been times of sitting there and I'm kind of like down, mm. like my liberty's been taken away from me. But I don't really dwell in. I, I'm always trying to move forward, mm. even if that, as you say, is a kind of. I'd say that is my basic mindset but when when I get depression it's impossible when I get depression I can't really see beyond the depression it's very hard to describe depression to people who who don't get it and it's one of the I've I've actually written probably my favourite I've written 14 books now and I think my favourite probably was all in the mind my first novel 
And one of the nicest things anybody ever said about anything I wrote was Charlie Fortner, who was Tony's Lord, when he was Lord Chancellor in Tony's government. And he, and he, read, he sent me a message. He, said, he says, I th- I've never had depression. He says, but I think for the first time ever, I've understood what it must be like. Because you can describe it, but... And even like now, I'm through this little bad phase I went through recently. And, and, and it, once it's gone, I think it's, it must be like women having children. You can't remember what it's like, otherwise you'd never do it again. Yeah. And I think if I thought all the time, oh, my God, one day I'll get depressed again, I think you would, you what, know. What, be... what gets you What gets you through it? Uh, well, it's the thing about how you use previous setbacks. So the big turning point for me was I had a breakdown in the 1980s, and I use that as my yardstick now. Such so, a low point. Yeah. However, I honestly thought I was going to die. I was completely mad. I was totally irrational, but I thought I was dying. And I was I was arrested. I was hospitalised. I was in a very, very bad way. I so thought, this is previous to yeah, yeah, this yeah. when you're a journalist? To take it? Yeah, I was a journalist, yeah. Okay. yeah. And so it, I was in that, my late 20s. What, what, what gets you in that state? Is it that self, you put that much expectation or pressure on I yourself? I think it was a combination of overwork. I was over-promoted. I was doing a job I should never have taken. I was drinking to excess. I was taking people close to me for granted. And I just went completely haywire. And, and how old are you there? 30s? 20. It was, I was 29. Okay, so you're a young man, really. Yeah. So that Not was in then, football terms, of course, but, no, but in, in real life terms. Yeah. yeah I, was, I, was, I was young. And, and, and then Fiona stood by me, which was a big thing. My old boss offered me my old job back. That was a massive thing. So I went back to the Daily Mirror, having left to go to this job I should never have taken. Where did you go to? I went back to the Mirror from today. I okay. went from the Mirror to today and back to the Mirror. And today, then, well, I don't. What was that today? was Eddie Shah's newspaper. Okay. Okay. This is so a startup. It, it was a startup which lasted a few years, and then. In the and what did RIP. you go and be editor of that? I was news editor at twenty-eight. Okay. And that was quite a big That's thing. That's very young, huh? Yeah. So I have that as a yardstick. So now, if I get depressed, I do force myself to say right. Or if that was nine out of ten, how bad's this? And if it's five, I'm okay. And then the other stuff that gets me through, sport gets me through. Even if I'm, some days I can't do it, but I try to either run, cycle, swim or box every day. All right, so I'd seen you do the marathon thing, which we'll talk about in in a bit. So was that not part of your regime? Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, absolutely. But doing it when you're feeling down is really hard. But doing it, does help i find music helps me a lot both you know my own music i play the bagpipes and i and, it, and it, i know don't you start as you get it no, i'm just like i, I know I, you I didn't go, expect that. there you go well yeah, i do I didn't expect it. and i and i listen to a lot of music when i'm feeling down and actually i listen to a lot of mournful music i listen to sad music i, I, I often listen to music that i know is going to make me cry okay like- and then the big th- uh well actually sometimes bagpipes sometimes you know old laments sometimes uh, jack brell's belgian singer that i absolutely love and he could always get me going proper crying are you like yeah. or just a little tear like when you watch like a film like I w- yeah I something about champ have you ever seen champ yeah, yeah. so yeah, like yeah. champ crying where you like a little bit yeah lip. just sort of emotional release crying Especially in the world that you're in, if it's in newspapers and then into politics and then into sport. Yeah. That's not a, a world no. where you can cry, really, mate. No, you know, you but can't I do. cry in there. I do. No, that's great. I mean, yeah. but obviously you can understand how yeah. we have the complications with emotions and, you know, the, the light and dark and the yeah. challenges. I, think, don't, I don't think people realise sometimes the pressure that yeah. people in the public spotlight live it's on. It's funny that. when. when, uh, when when I published my first volume of diaries, uh, Blair Years, and my son read it, he said, Dad, I mean, do we have to have all this crying shit? Because I do quite a lot of it on my own. When I feel very, very pressured, I force myself to cry and it becomes a big release. Um, and then when I'm depressed, I do. And, and sometimes I can, I won't even realise I'm doing it. The diary keeping, do you find that you write when you're in moments of light, which is normality, and then or moments of darkness? Fun enough, I've become less focused on the routine of it. I used to do it just every night, whatever. Okay. Whatever was going on, I would just say, if, even if it was just 20 minutes, 10 minutes, half an hour, whatever. And, you know, and to be honest, publishing them has been. I've enjoyed it at times, but it's quite ballsaching, you know. You just because you just it's old stuff. You're looking back. Did you have but, to redact any stuff in them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Not that much. Was the classified? Well, I suppose you'd be privy. Well, to I had that. to go through 
a process, which everybody does if they're writing a book about time in government. And there was the, there was some stuff that was taken out. But actually, to be fair, there's a wonderful woman called Sue Gray in the cabinet office who in charge of that process. And she was, she you know, it was it was not as bad as I thought okay. it was going to be. The, but the process of it, of writing the diary, I do find therapeutic. I see it, it's like an emotional dumping ground every day. See, I found that uh, Steve Black, when I first started working mm. with Steve, he encouraged me to, to diary keep, and it was just professional. He said, look, write the diaries if no one's ever going to see it. Obviously, it's slightly different to yours because mm. you knew you were going to diarise it for maybe to be published at some stage. Now, I've got a bank of a year's worth of QPR and a year's worth of Burnley and then up-to-date ranges, etc., etc., of my professional thoughts and feelings. And actually to look back on them, mm. I didn't understand it at the time. It's so cathartic. Yeah, It allows you to compartmentalise yeah. emotions, professional thoughts. I think the gaffer should have gone this way. I'd he was, tried... You were wrong about that, by the way. The gaffer's always right. <laughs> no, at Burnley, <laughs> at Burnley, of course. At QPR, I oh, forget QPR, I had Harry yeah, Redknapp. Yeah, that was so different. Yeah, the, our gaffer's Harry Redknapp I had, so most of the time <laughs> I was right. <laughs> so it, it enabled me to then, because I'd put down how I thought the game was going to go, how I thought it was going to pan out tactically, how I thought we'd train this week. And then it enabled me to shelve it, whereas at previous clubs, I didn't have that. Yeah. And there'd be a build-up, and then it'd end up in an incident where I'd get sent off, or there'd be a reaction to a teammate. And it's something I never, ever thought I'd do. But obviously, knowing that you've done it, I can understand the process, especially when you're in, you know, sit, uh, my mind's, my, my situation's my own personal selfish football club. When you're in government, and the, mm. and the changes you make in government can lead to, you know, changing lots of people's lives. I mean, the, the pressure there must have been incredible. Yeah, the thing about the other thing I find about a diary, well, I'm glad I kept it. I don't know about you, I've got a terrible memory. Yeah. And I love having to, the ability, because there's stuff now that I don't remember it, but I can recall it in that I know it happened because I wrote about it at the time and I can reflect on that. And I think the other thing, you do see patterns in your life. But your brain also... What I found it was I'd say, I think X is going to happen. Mm. And then six months down the line, I'd go, yeah, I was right there. And then when I checked the diary back, I was like, no, I thought the other thing was going to mm. happen. Mm. So your brain has a way of kind of formatting mm. the past to fit yeah. your current agenda. There's definitely a bit of that. So, yeah, well, I, I think it's a great thing for anyone listening. I think to keep a diary certainly is a really interesting uh, process. And I, I think, think the other thing, there's, there's uh, one of my favourite lines in the winner's book is a, is a quote from Marilyn Monroe, Thinking Inc., I've always done that. I've always thought in ink. If I've got a problem, if I've got an issue, I've got something I'm trying to think through, I write it down. And often I go for a run first or I go out on the bike and that's when all the cogs start to move. And then, then I'll get back and I'll start writing it down. Perfect. You lead me on perfectly. I wanted to talk about the 2016 book winners. Mm-hmm. So you, you do many things in your career now. You're a consultant, you're a journalist and an editor. You're also a writer and in 2016, you published a book called Winners. You talk about your own experiences of winning in your book. You obviously interviewed about 50 different people, all winners in some form or fashion. What characteristics did they share? Uh, they're all different, but I think if there's one thing that I would say they all had, even if they wouldn't necessarily articulate it as this, I think they're all strategic. I think they have a really big sense of what they're trying to achieve. And I think the other thing they have is an obsession with the detail of what they do. There's a great quote in there. I talked to Wazim Akram, the Pakistani fast bowler. All these people, I asked all of them a small number of the same questions. And one of them was, what's the difference between wanting to win and will to win? And he said, wanting to win, we all do that. We all say we want to win. Will to win is when you are prepared to work out and then do the things that you need to do to win. And I think if you look at, you've worked in lots of different competitive environments, you can see the ones who just, it's not just that they have that extra talent, but they then make something of that extra talent. So I think it's, uh, I think most of them are obsessive. Some are not, you can get the kind of totally relaxed winner, but I think most are obsessive. They're obsessed about, and they're obsessed about the detail of what they do. Because you talk about objective strategy and tactics mm. and and that you shouldn't get your strategy and your tactics muddled well a lot of people do i think it funny enough there's a chapter where i interview Mourinho, and he has a completely different view of what the strategy and tactics are he, he, in his mind he said that for, so for me right in politics objective 
you set the objective. So like in 97, to go back to the beginning, win. Strategy, modernization, tactics, everything that follows from that. He said that in his world, he builds a tactical model for every match that he plays. And in that, he will say to the team, this is how I want to set up, this is how I want to play. And he didn't exactly say that all footballers are thick, but he said you can't tell them too much, you can't give them too much detail, give them three or four things each. And that's his tactical model. He says strategy is what he does when he makes a change because the tactical model isn't working. Okay, And that's a totally different way of thinking of it. For me, strategy is what I, I say. The objective is what you want to achieve. Strategy is the big how. How am I going to do this? And I think in sport, maybe it is a bit different, but the principles to me are exactly the same. And then what you need to flow from that, you need to, nobody's ever achieved anything and didn't have a team. So you need to be able to build and inspire a team. You need to be able to innovate. You need to be able to adapt. You need to be able to use data properly. You need to be able to you know, reflect and play back the changes that are happening around you it was fascinating to talk to um, and I was really really lucky about the sorts of people who I got to talk to and it was a breadth of people I mean I, mean, I always think of the Bill Walsh you've seen Bill Walsh he talks about the middle eight and the focus on on that middle eight you know your top mm. achievers in any organisation are going to do whatever's necessary as you say they're really driven obsessive compulsive I've always found some of the best players I've played with have been right on that edge and that's yeah. probably why they've found it difficult to then adjust to yeah. the reality I of think normal there, there, life there's a, there's a bit, I took, because I went on the Lions tour with Clive Woodman I got to know Clive very well and he's got this guy that he uses Humphrey Walters who's a, he's actually a sailor in terms of you know his sports background but he's a bit of a leadership management guru and he's got this thing about you know you've got three sorts of people in a, in a team you've got leaders warriors and talent uh, and he tells the story about how when Martin Johnson literally went into a rock and pulled Johnny Wilkinson out by the scruff of his neck and yanked him out and sort of threw him back to where he was meant to be because he's talent. Yeah, You leave that, the dirty stuff on the ground, leave it to the Warriors. Now, I think you can be leader, warrior and talent, but the thing about the leader is that he or she has to has to work out what the strengths of these other the team members are, and then gel them into a team. So, what was you in the uh, in the Labour government then? Was you well, a leader, a warrior, or a talent, or a mixture of all three? I think I was a mixture of all three in a way because I had my own team that I had to lead, and I had the in the comms side I was leading the process of change. I was definitely a a warrior in terms of you know fighting, and I think the talent in that I was adding something to what Tony was trying to do in terms of the kind of you know the words and the speeches, the arguments, and, and so forth. So I think we're all a mixture of all three. But I think, you know, if I looked at you in a, uh, say, when you your spells at, at Burnley, I'd say you were a mixture of all three. Yeah, but it's, it was something yeah, that I'd had to learn. At other clubs, I'd probably been guilty of being... A warrior. And it was bad. You yeah. See, warrior can yeah. be bad. Yeah. If it, it, uh, yeah, on the archetype, for sure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it would... Um... I, think, I think if you look at... And if I, if I look at... You know, you look at somebody like, I don't know, Roy Keane, he's he's leader warrior talent. But again, he's, 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 had, he's been bitten on his own arse by, the, by the warrior. He's would on you, the edge. I suppose if you've got that warrior inside you, it's tough to... He's usually the first to respond when you're backed into a corner. Mm. It's only with, I've found with a bit of maturity that I've been able to allow the other parts of my personality to interact and yeah. go. And certainly at Burnley, I'd come from, you know, I had a, a really strong character in, in terms of the manager there and, and a really strong group so it was easy for me yeah. to play different roles whereas in other clubs it, that wasn't always the case there was certainly a leadership void and yeah. what happens with people like me and I surmise it's like you if there's a leadership void You'll we'll quite it. quickly fill it yeah because it's yeah. part of the personality yeah so when we talked about the Mourinho thing earlier and you're talking about Mourinho's difference in terms of strategy and tactics yeah what's your belief do you, do you believe in Mourinho or are you saying that they are completely separate or can you see his argument? I, I, the reason I made him my main profile on strategies, I can see his argument for what he does. I think if you brought that into politics, I think you'd have chaos. And I think one of the mm. reasons why this country now, in my view, is in a complete mess is because Cameron on Europe confused strategy and tactics. And I'll say what I mean by that. So he never wanted Britain to come out of Europe, but he wanted to win the 2015 election. His tactic 
for the campaign to keep Europe quiet as an issue was to offer a referendum. Yeah. But he never had a strategy to persuade Britain that we our future is in Europe. It was just fear, wasn't it? Just yeah, so then he gets into the referendum. He wins the election, then he has the referendum, he loses the election, he's finished. So that, to me, was a classic confusion of strategy and tactics. And I see the same with Theresa May. You know, she during the campaign, she was allegedly remained. She's now sort of this hard Brexit position. And it's all tactical. There's no, there's no big strategy to it. I mean, I can tell by the tone of your voice, you, you know, you're incredibly passionate <laughs> about, about Brexit and you can't wait for Britain to, to exit the EU. <laughs> well, let me switch from uh, politics to football now. Yeah. In my research, I found out you were born in Yorkshire. Yeah. Okay, and yeah. your family editor is Scottish, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And yet you're a passionate supporter of Burnley FC. Yeah. And you know I've got strict rules in Go terms on. of how I think you should support your local club. Yeah. And unless your parents or your grandparents yeah. are from Burnley or supporting okay. Burnley, then that's the lineage you get. I don't think you can choose your football club. I think it chooses yeah, yeah. you or it's passed on to you. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> how do you come to support Burnley? How? So all right, I was born in Keithley okay. in West Yorkshire and we were equidistant roughly between Burnley, Leeds and Bradford. When I was growing up, there were loads of Burnley fans in Keithley. And we used to go, my dad was a vet, his team was Party Thistle. So what we used to do, we used to go to different games. And I just fell for Burnley the very first time. I was four. Was it the colours or...? I mean, I can't remember, but I think I've always loved the colours, definitely. I've always loved the ground. Great ground. Amazing ground. Especially in the midweek games under the lights. Oh, but also, and back then, I can, I don't know what it was. I, do you know the other thing was, I've always had a big thing about, well, now, I love beautiful scenery, okay? And I wonder whether actually it was the drive from, because the drive from Keithley to Burnley, you see, was amazing. I sometimes go and do it now just because it's so beautiful. And then stadium pops up. Stadium pops up and you see it. And then, and of course, at the time, I think Leeds were third division north or something. Bradford City were, don't know where. We were reigning league champions when I yeah. first saw it. Is this Burnley. the Jim McElroy era and all that? Yeah. So your first game, your four? My first ever football game was Celtic Motherwell. Because uh, we were on holiday in Scotland. Holiday. But my first... <laughs> my first Is there uh, such a thing? Yes. <laughs> you were visiting Scotland. I was, we were on holiday, as we were every year of my childhood in Scotland, visiting relatives, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? I feel terrible at this. I don't know what my first Burnley game was. My dad's he's dead now, but he couldn't remember either. So what's the first one you can remember? Oh, first one I can... I'll tell you my first... If I'm allowed to use the word fart, my first vivid, vivid memory of Turf Moor is Gordon Harris taking a throw-in against West Ham. And I can remember it was West Ham because they played light blue with Claret. All oh, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, Claret hoops. And Gordon Harris came to take a throw-in and he farted <laughs> right by where I was. And I thought, oh, I can't believe it, Gordon Harris farts. Yeah, it must have been a crap match, that, if that's all you remember. <laughs> I don't remember any goals. And then, no, I can remember... Um, do you know what? I, I know you football people, you really remember stuff. I don't remember football very well. I remember atmospheres, I remember moods, I remember, I remember stuff off the field, I remember stuff on the trip. The only time I've ever left, literally done a runner for a game, was when Celtic came down to play in the Anglo-Scottish Cup. Before Scotland fans became the best in the world. These two are the worst in the world. And the was, best the before world. they were civilised. They absolutely wrecked the place. It was terrifying. Was that within in the era when they went to Wembley and wrecked Wembley yeah, and all that? Brilliant. Yeah, that was brilliant. Tart See, that's that. the other thing. I sported Scotland. See, I sport Burnley in Scotland. I've always sported Burnley in Scotland. It's probably not a bad position to take yeah, that, mate. good. thing is, I've followed Burnley from the very top, reigning champions, down to the 92nd when we had to beat Orient in May 1987 <laughs> to stay in the league. And we did. And now back up again to the amazing place we're at now. So this is the golden era in, in Burnley football? It's amazing. It's just under been, Sean Dyche. It's fantastic, yeah. And you've, so, been, you've been a big part of that. Well, I was just going to ask you here, were you surprised when I signed for Burnley? Not at all, because Sean and I have been talking about it for ages. Okay, so you're privy to the information. Yeah. And he, see, he's more than a fan. He's actually a, uh, uh, he's on the coaching staff. Um, what did you think? Was you happy? Anxious? And oh, did I you think it, I might be trouble? Uh I think Sean... Don't forget, De Gaffer will be listening to this, so he'll tell me, uh, yeah, right, he'll text right, right, me. Right, right, right. I, I do have a bit of a blind spot in that whatever Burnley do, there was, there was somebody once said that um, 
Uh, it was Herbert Morrison, who, who was Peter Mandelson's granddad, and he was a minister in one of the old Labour governments, and he, he said, socialism is what a Labour government, whatever a Labour government does, right? <laughs> and I'm a little bit, whatever Bernie do is fine, okay? But actually, I was really excited by you coming in. Well, we'd be, met in Marseille, hadn't we? we had met, person to yeah, person, we'd had, yeah. Uh, not me before that. Yeah, but we'd met and and we properly a, in Marseille. Yeah, we had, a, we had a, a really nice time down in Marseille, and... And, that's, that's, Al's knew, French, that's Al's French club, Marseille. It is, yeah. Sean knew that I knew you a bit. And he did. He phoned me up and he said, listen, do you think it'd be mad to get Joey Barton? And I'm not pretending, by the way, that I was responsible for you yeah. coming because I think he'd made You phoned him that. and said, hey, you should sign <laughs> no, him. No, 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 I didn't do that. You'll fit in the team. But yeah. I said, <laughs> what he, he says, do you, think it, do you think it's a crazy idea? I said, no, I think it's a great idea. And I always felt, I was totally proved right, I always felt you'd be a really good fit for Burnley. And I I remember talking to you about, because you had the whole thing about those stupid tweets you'd done taking the piss out of Burnley. No, 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 I'd had a bottle of Coke bounced off my head. Yeah, but so what? You deserved it. I didn't react to it. (laughs) I was just playing football, mate. I was just trying to win my team a game. I hadn't said anything. I hadn't upset any Burnley fans. That was a great shot, though, wasn't it? Unbelievable shot. Unbelievable shot. (laughs) It's, It's actually really difficult to do. Because yeah, I tried to get, I just impossible. see it coming out the corner of my eye last minute and I tried to move and it was just pink <laughs> straight off. But I think that endeared me ultimately when I went there. I think the Definitely. fact that we'd had a bit of, Definitely. I don't want to hate using the word banter. But no, but you had. And, and also it was, I think, the fact that, you you know, you went to Burnley and it, it was a fit. It was a total perfect fit. You were player of the season first season, weren't you? It's arguably my favourite period in football yeah. and I hope to add to it I hope at some point to go back whether it's yeah no, listen I'm in, well in aware this whole series is about trying to get Sean to get you give you a job at the end of it <laughs> no, no, I'm aware no, of that this is, but it, it, this is, not, go, a, this is not a job application this is um, <laughs> I, I'd like to give something back obviously the yeah. FA in the infinite wisdom have banned me from all football activities so I can't coach the kids so yeah. I can't put anything back in yeah, that otherwise is, I, that I'd want to whereas be what they might have done and, and actually is a form of community I don't, service. I don't know if I'm allowed to tell your viewers that I, I did give you a little bit of help on your statement dealing with the FA. You did, mate, yeah. Right. But one, and I it did... was great because you cost them the, the £12 million sponsorship with Ladbrook. So in the FA, you're never having a pop at me again. It's you they should be coming for. Oh, they probably will. Because you helped me word that and ultimately they realised the hypocrisy of their well, position. It is, but it is. It is. Yeah. It's a huge issue. Look at Burnley now. It's the Ladbrook stand. But you can't, you can't blame the, the gambling companies. Surely it's down to the FA to police it. Well, it's, I mean, I think the government... Uh, I, I do think we've got a real, real problem in Britain with gambling. Huge. I think gambling and alcohol are two massive crises in British life, and they are the two sectors that provide all the money in football. Well, somebody's got to... Can we Which please just game? do two plus two equals four sometimes? Anyway. I, I, I completely agree with you, and it, it's going to be interesting. So you gamble at the moment? From. Gambling. Hmm. No, do you know what's the weird thing about my personality? I've not even been engaged to have a bet since I've been banned for betting. Right. So, so actually what you wanted was, for, it's just... It was just boredom. Yeah. I'd be in a hotel, and obviously I, yeah. you can't drink, you can't take drugs because there's ramifications on your personal yeah. well-being and you, um, you get tested. Yeah. I've never really been a womanizer. I haven't got that amount of energy, and I love my missus. And if she ever found me, she would probably not leave me, but yeah, probably yeah. put me in a hole in the in the floor yeah. somewhere. Yeah. So gambling was one of those things you could yeah, sit, yeah, you yeah. could be on your phone. I didn't think it was harming anybody. I was gambling way within me limits, yeah. even though there was a big volume. It yeah, was yeah. quite comfortable comparatively to what I earned, and I was just carrying on for twelve years willy nilly, as you could yeah. see by the volume of bets I had. Yeah. Obviously, since I've been banned not I, i'm not even interested in it mm. because i'm like okay what what was it doing so maybe anyway? what you liked was the fact that it was wrong maybe maybe it was that little bit of peter k not the comedian uh worked at sport and chance yeah, yeah. who i had a uh, really great friendship with he used to talk to me about there was an internal saboteur so when things were going well there was an element of my personality that liked to just throw a grenade out there well, just funny, to you know, poke the box give you another plug of the new book my missus and came to see my psychiatrist with me once no, several times actually, but at one point she said the trouble with Alistair, whenever his life's going really well, he'll do something to sabotage it. That's maybe why we get on, mate. Maybe mm-hmm. there's uh, many <laughs> Maybe that's why we... we have, yeah, maybe, maybe that's why we, we, we talk at this level and we get each other. <laughs> no, I think it, there's definitely something in that. I, I think so. What I think people mightn't understand, it's, it's probably the main driving factor in why I've achieved what I've achieved mm. it's helped me when people have said you can't do this and you can't do that that same I don't want to say darkness because it almost insinuates that it's bad but that same edge and that's where I've always found a right at that 
is when I'm at my best, but it's almost the yeah. most volatile yeah. position. Now, if I can stay on the good side of it, the light side of it, and away from the darkness, life is so productive, yeah. so in, full of excitement and enjoyment for yeah. me. Yeah. And it's when I don't maintain that, and I think I take it for granted. So when you're talking before, you didn't, you were just ploughing on, get mm. new job, etc., etc. That was when I thought I had it conquered. And I didn't embrace it. I didn't hold it out in front and say, hey, look, this could happen. That was when it come back and bit me in the arse. Mm. And now I, I openly, part of this is talking about it with people who I think have that kind of edge. Mm. That's mm. what makes you, that's no doubt what's made you as successful as you've been in life. And, and I think that's what ultimately, okay, gives you some dark moments, but it's ultimately mm. made you, you know, yeah, I think, think, the, think what you've achieved, I think. No, it's no, not, you, it's not you, normal trajectory, that. I don't feel that, you see, because I think uh, there's part of me thinks I've underachieved. Because I think I could have done other things which I've not done, and I think that now well, we always underachieve, don't yeah, we? I do. I do think this dark side, which I definitely have, because I've got the depressive bit. I think it is. I, for example, some of the best stuff I've done work-wise is when I've been either you talk about on the edge yeah. when I'm coming out of a depression and, I, and I'm a bit manic. Does the fact that you've got the darkness make you appreciate the light and oh, the light yeah. moment so much? Totally. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Mm. I, I think. For the bad times you have in football, and you know, there's lots more positives and negatives. But certainly, the way my brain was regulating at the mm, time, mm. I always tried to find something to be angry about. Because you know what the other thing when you talk about football, when we beat Chelsea the first day of the season, three-two, which was just I've seen you on the cold comments. Yeah, I did go a bit crazy. Yeah, I don't think if you're a kid today, grown up, and you've supported Man United, Chelsea, Manchester City, Arsenal. Okay, Arsenal fans are having a bit of a bad time at the moment. It's not that bad. They've not been 92nd in the league like we have. They've not been to Hartlepool in a league game on a Tuesday night and got battered. Isn't this something cultural that everybody wants a top job, everybody wants to support the best club that win all the time? Nobody wants to lose in, mm. in society. Well, Nobody wants a shit job, nobody wants to do an apprenticeship, nobody wants to do any hard work. They want to get the top job and they want to get it way before they're ready for it. And therefore, I do. Yeah, maybe. I find that you've got to have setbacks to get stronger. Setbacks to get stronger. You know, get in a little bit over your head. Step back down. Yeah. Come, but now, if you fail once, you, that's the end of you. Or, or that's the perception. Yeah, it, it, I think I think kids today have got a lot of tougher challenges that we never had. Even though the world is a lot better for them in some ways. So, for example, you know, I went to university. It was free. I came out. Got a good degree. I was I was kind of on a path. Uh, now, okay, the path. I'm totally with you on setbacks. By the way, I think that is, setbacks are vital, and it's how you use them and emerge from them. But I think today, I mean, I was a kid in the house the other day. He just left university, forty-seven thousand debt. I think God, I, I couldn't cope with that because I'm paranoid about being in debt. I hate the idea of being in debt. You and I, when we were, you know, you reach a certain standard of living, you think right, you can get your own home. Well, I think for a lot of kids today, Soft, it's yeah. just very, very difficult to imagine. It's that. impossible. Yeah. yeah, it's impossible. So, but I agree with you. The thing about, you know, people not necessarily understanding that failure and setback can be an incredibly positive thing. Well, it gives you the foundation to be strong yeah. when you're ready to step into As long into as you're that. willing to learn from it. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that's the thing that strikes me when I think about, even, even for instance, we look back to Burnley. So Burnley, get promoted, incredible, because I was at QPR at the time, going on a crazy run under mm. Sean Dyche, completely mm. off the radar. Finished second in the championship. No, this that's the second oh, the, time. The, 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 the first time round, yeah. Uh, okay. So the first time round, they go into the Premier League, yeah, yeah. unexpected, come back down. But oh, you mean when we went through the playoffs? Well, we're talking about getting getting a setback. So yeah. I thought the way they conducted themselves in the Premier League, didn't overspend, didn't go mm-hmm. crazy, mm-hmm. didn't get sucked mm-hmm. in. They get relegated, but keeps the fulcrum of the team, decides, adjusts his strategy based mm. on what he's seen up in the, in the big league. I came in that that second season with Andre Gray and a few other players and then when they went back up we were ready to go in the mm. Premier League and stayed up the next mm. time mm. so I, you know when you're saying you've gone up and getting relegated most clubs would go that's failure let's sack the manager but Burnley I think yeah, very yeah, smartly yeah. went hey we've got a good guy yeah, here yeah. okay you know football would see that as failure Yeah, it's just the world we live in whereas Burnley I think very smartly went hey he's a good manager allowed them time in the Championship Bear in mind, it wasn't always plain sailing in the championship. No, yeah, we went on that crazy run. Yeah. But I remember going to Middlesbrough 
and getting beat at Middlesbrough and that was yeah. a turning point for us and then we did go 23 games unbeaten after yeah. that as you uh, rightly sung about <laughs> so um, I've had many setbacks and hey, I, I quite look forward to them hopefully not as public and as spectacular as the ones before but <laughs> they've all put me in a good stead Al so what struck me was is this your favourite era as a Burnley supporter? Yeah, no, maybe not actually no because I think I'm not sure I like the game that much at the moment I was at Liverpool when we beat them. I think it was 1974. Ian Brennan scored an amazing uh, left foot shot. And we beat them one 0 I just think football then football was more atmospheric. I've actually I've just finished my next book after this one. Oh, can hell how many books? I know you've this is my fourteenth, and the next one. I've, do you know Paul <laughs> Fletcher used to play for Paul Burnley? Fletcher. Then he became CEO. He played for Burnley in the 70s. Centre forward, okay. really good player. And he and I... Al, I was only born 82. I know. He and I have written a novel together called Saturday Bloody Saturday, and it's about football in the 1970s, and it's got an IRA plot line as well. And the thing is, we've got a fictional team, but it's playing Billy Bremner, it's playing okay, yeah. Ron Harris, it's uh, Don Revy's there, you know. It's, and anyway, I've had really good fun, but one of it, I'd say that was my favourite era of the 70s, even though we weren't doing that well. So... What is your idea of happiness? One of my 14 books is called The Happy Depressive. And in it, I say that you were talking about how people today, they want too much too quick. I think we confuse happiness with having a good time. Happiness to me is something you reflect on as your life comes to an end. So happiness to me is whether I will be able at the end of my life to say that was a good life, well lived, that I had great relationships, particularly with Fiona and my kids and my parents, both now dead, and my siblings and all that, and some good friendships and some good experiences, but also that I made something of the talents that I had. So I don't buy this idea that you're happy as you go. I think happiness to me is what you reflect on if you've lived a good life. And what is your idea of misery? What gets you down? Uh, My idea of misery is, is when depression strikes. Or Brexit. Brexit is making me miserable but i'd say depression anybody who's had really bad depression knows that is all the misery you need in life it's horrible which person do you admire most and why do you admire them living or dead or whatever you want me okay the greatest person who ever lived in my view is william shakespeare i think to have that he's a burnley fan (laughs) <laughs> used to travel up from Stratford <laughs> did, in his Burnley. horse he would have written a play horse. about it sure wouldn't he he'd have called it the gaffer <laughs> <laughs> if I had done you actually yeah the troubled midfielder the demon <laughs> midfielder so um, I just think he was amazing dead people who I met I'd go for Nelson Mandela and today today I'm going to say Tessa Jowell who was cabinet minister during our time. Very, very good friend. And she, at the moment, she's got brain cancer. And just watching how she's dealing with it, and not just how she's dealing with it as an illness, which is really, really bad, but also how she's dealing with it in terms of how she intends to use it to try and help other people. So I'm, I'm going for her at the moment. Your favourite book, not your own, because you've got millions... Your favourite book, you can't say mine, I know that I'll probably be up there. And why is it your favourite? <laughs> Can I have one fiction and one non-fiction? Go on, mate. Yeah. Fiction, I'm going for Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, French novelist, and it was the book that made me love the French language as much as I do. I actually do love the French language. I love speaking I, French, I, I love I writing do, mate. French. You've, you've seen me interview, I've loved it. <laughs> it's phenomenal. <isn't> it? <laughs> I love reading it, I love everything about it. And, and do you do it book, in the same tone as me? or do you? I kind of, I, I like to think my accent is a bit more refined. And then my non-fiction book would be a book called Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin, and it's about Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, I've got that. I've not read it yet. Honestly. Someone bought me that, yeah. It's the best book about politics ever written. Okay, I'll get stuck yeah. into that. Uh, your favourite film and why is it your favourite? This changes all the time, but I'm going for a film called Land of Mine. It's Danish, but a lot of the dialogue's in German because it's the story of... I didn't even know this story to my shame until I saw the film. It's after the war, the Second World War, 
these Ger young German soldiers were taken and they had to clear the whole of West Denmark of landmines. And it's the story about the Danish guy who's in charge of them, who starts off brutalising them, but as the film goes on, starts to realise that there's a kind of shared admiration. humanity. Not an admiration, but there's a shared humanity there. It's really, really moving. It's dark. It's a very dark film, but it's also incredibly moving. So Land of Mine. I think in Danish it's called Undersandet. Favourite song or piece of music? Why is it your favourite? This changes a lot as well. I think I'd have to go with the bagpipes and probably my brother who died last year, he was a really, really good bagpipe player. He made like professional quality. Did he teach you CD. how to do it? No, my dad taught us both. Okay. At a young age? Yeah, very young. Yeah. When we it's strange. Like, when, you see, when I see people do it, it looks very, very difficult. Yeah, it's like anything. Technique? Yeah, learning. You know, I, I, mean, I had a good teacher. My dad taught me. And actually, we were both good players as kids and then we were taught by... A guy called Tony Wilson, who had his Not little... Tony Wilson from the Hacienda? No, Tony Wilson. I was going to say, that'd be interesting. <laughs> Al in the Hacienda at your bagpipes. I was like, how does that work with I've Bez? A, I've, I've recorded a reggae thing with my bagpipes. I was going to say, you recorded one with Bez then, I was going but to say. He's, uh, but this guy, Tony Wilson, he, he got his 15 minutes of fame because he was the pipe major who led the band on Paul McCartney's Mon of Kintyre. Okay, great tune. He was my teacher. But Donald was a really, really, my brother was a really good player, so I'd probably go for something with him. I do listen to a lot of Scottish music. There's a band called Skippinish. Never heard of them, have you? No. Last year they sold more records in Scotland than One Direction. Okay. They're big. And, uh, the boy band? They're brilliant. They're, they're, they're not a boy band. They're a fantastic Hebridean folk band. Oh, I see. And uh, if you want one tune, I'll give you one tune. It's called Alive. You'd like it. What's your favourite meal? Meal? Yeah. You could have one. Not, not not quite a last supper, I don't want to make it that morbid, but oh, if you were on... Probably. Fiona's actually a really good cook, and she, she's a vegetarian, but she does cook fish, for me. So I'm going for sea bass, and I'm going with her... I don't know how she does it, but she does this kind of risotto thing with stuff in it. What about yourself? Can you cook? Uh, I've cooked one meal in my life. I'm not proud of this. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not far behind you there. It's not, yeah. it's not part of my skill set. I'm not... I, I can't. All right, so we're into the last two questions here. Dinner party, five yeah. guests, dead or alive. Who do you want in there? Shakespeare's, huh? Shakespeare's definitely there. Princess Diana's there. Princess uh, Diana? Yeah, yeah. Read volume one. Okay. Uh, and volume two, actually. She's a <laughs> The first one, she's in it as a human being, and the second one, because of the, the death, was okay. in volume two. So Diana, Got three more. Shakespeare. I'm probably going to go for... I'd, I really would love to have met Abraham Lincoln. Am I allowed him as well as... Of course you Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then from sport, I think I'll probably go for Sean Dyche and Joey Barton. How's about You've that? You've wasted two there. Oh, we can talk, <laughs> about, we can talk about how you're going to come back at the end you, of the year. Won't, you won't be doing much talking. I, if, you'd if be all right. I, I, I <laughs> yeah, the guy actually does talk a lot, Lee. Yeah, yeah, he, he talks more talk. than me, which is... He difficult. does talk, he does talk. I thought you might have gone like Ali or someone like that. Oh, I love Martin Luther King. Actually, wow. no, I'll tell you what, I'm going to sack you off. Donald Trump. I'm going to have Elvis. Yeah, get rid of okay. me. Okay. Same Similar haircut. And I'm going to get rid of Sean and I'm going to have Jack Brell. Okay. Okay, so I've got two enough, musicians mate. there. Yeah. Last but not least, what is your favourite quote? Favourite quote is, Sean should have this on the... Um, you know, he's a quote boy. He loves his quote boys. He's got them everywhere. He's got them everywhere, yeah. Fail to prepare and you're preparing to fail. Okay. Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, isn't that Aston Villa's club motto? Something like that. Be prepared or prepared. That's or Boy Scouts, isn't it? I don't know, something like anyway, that. Anyway, but I think yeah. that's, it's neat, isn't it? Fail to prepare and you're preparing to fail. I was prepared for this. So you were? I'll, listen. All that research there. Yeah, I want to say thanks for contributing to my series of podcasts. Alistair, thank you for joining me at the Edge. Pleasure. You've been listening to the Edge podcast. And thanks again to Alistair Campbell. Truly remarkable insight, you know, not only to his mind, but to the movements of the politics of that era. You know, I remember being my first political experience, you know, the, the sweeping wave of New Labour and Tony Blair. And to sit at that crux of change, really, you know, it swept the nation. And to hear it played out like that is, is great. I mean, as he's shown, some of the most 
Incredible leaders can have fallibility. So again, look, let me know what you think by tweeting at UK and at Joey7Barton. And if you want to hear more from our conversation, you can find some exclusive extra bits over at Deezer.com or via the Deezer app. I'll be back next week where I'll be talking to rugby union legend, player and coach, Sir Clive Woodward. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. But until then, from me, Joey Barton, thanks for tuning in and goodbye. Originals.